As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Dan Bardell. Welcome to the England Show on The Athletic. A big, big week ahead as England face Germany in the last 16 of Euro 2020 at Wembley on Tuesday evening. And on today's pod, we're going to take a look inside the training base Gareth Southgate's team are using to prepare at St George's Park. Hello everyone, I'm Aaron Maguire. I don't know what day it is, um, but yeah, this is the room. We had a water balloon fight. <laughs> After what? training, Dean Henderson lost. He got ambushed. Somebody okay. hit Jack Grealish when he wasn't expecting it. He's not fuming. He just he wants to get him back. I think Harry Kane sorted it out for him to come in and you know he did a little sing song while he was eating food. So I was just sat there looking at him like, oh my god, Ed Sheeran's right in front of me. To help me on the panel from The Athletic, I'm joined by Ollie Kay, Jack Pitbrook and Dan Sheldon. Dan, welcome. Your England podcast debut this morning, I believe. I've read your piece on England and St George's Park and how things have been down there. found it very, very interesting. Just want to tell our listeners a little bit what, what the aim of the piece were and what you were trying to get across. The idea of the piece, really, I, I put it together with Danny Taylor, obviously our colleague at The Athletic, and just sort of what is, what is life like as a player inside St George's Park at the moment you know obviously they're in a Covid bubble so they can't see family and friends or anything like that so it's what have the FA put on to offer the players as kind of entertainment because you know we all know professional footballers don't spend from nine till five on a football pitch training you know it may be two three hours and then there's a lot of downtime so it's really just looking at well what are they what are they up to in their spare time what what sort of games can they you know, participate in. And that's kind of the crux of the piece. So yeah, me and me and Danny went away and, you know, did some digging and, and looked into it. Yeah, I'll say straight off the bat, if you do want to go and read Dan's piece in full on The Athletic and subscribe for just a pound a month, you can do so at the moment by going to theathletic.com slash England pod. Jack, welcome to the podcast as well. Of, of all our writers, you've probably been the closest to the England camp throughout the tournament. Can you just give us the general mood of the players and the coaches at the moment, how, how they're finding being at St George's Park? Well, because of COVID restrictions, I've still been 160 miles away from St George's Park throughout. But uh, for as much as I can deduce from um, Zoom calls with with players and and staff, I 
I get the impression that it seems pretty happy and relaxed, you know. I, maybe in a sense it doesn't feel like a tournament just because, you know, they're going to somewhere they're familiar with, which is St. George's Park where they go, you know, four or five times a year. They're, they haven't gone abroad yet, England. They could, you know, if they lose to Germany, Germany they will not go abroad at all. So in, in that sense, it has been different. But I, I get the impression that, and this is something that's conveyed really well in, in Dan and Danny's piece, that they have successfully recreated the kind of relaxed, friendly environment as far as is possible, given the COVID rules uh, at St. George's Park, which you know, obviously was such a big part of their success in Russia three years ago. Yeah, Ollie, I think in in previous tournaments, even as recently as Euro 2016, the, 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 the way the camp's been set up hasn't always been the greatest, but that's certainly one thing that Gareth Southgate seems to have got right in, in Russia, and he's carried it on for this tournament as well. I think it's improved a lot over time. I think I think they've, it's something that sort of evolved from, you know, go back to the 80s and the 90s, there, there would be... The the the, the, co- the you know the coaches and the team would, would be they would just be in a hotel. There wouldn't really be much thought about how they would spend their down, downtime. Then in the two thousands, they had Sven Joran Eriksson who had a very sort of relaxed approach to it, and the players were able to come and go. And then at the following World Cup twenty ten, South Africa Fabio Capello had this incredibly austere camp, uh, which the players sort of likened to a prison in that there was no, you know, there, there was stuff there for them to do, but they they just felt the whole regime was so strict. They were confined to the bedroom for long periods. And so I think from the, you know, ever since then, really, the, the FA have been sort of moving in a different direction and making it a more sort of calm, relaxed atmosphere and more, you know, just being aware of how much downtime the players have, as Dan, as Dan said, and, and just trying to make that, downtime as relaxed as possible while still allowing the the training time and the preparation time to be as professional as possible. Yeah, and Ollie, I'll stick with you. It feels like a long time since Gareth Southgate what was a player now, mm. but he does seem to be able to relate to the players a lot more than previous England managers, doesn't he? He does. If you go back to Fabio Capello again, sorry for using that as the, 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 the yardstick. I mean, Fabio Capello is probably the best manager to, well, certainly in, in my lifetime, best manager to have managed England and you look at everything he did, but he didn't seem to understand the demands of an England squad at a at an internet, uh, you know, at a major tournament. He felt that they needed that sort of Italian style, very rigorous, very disciplined approach. And these players were so much younger than him; they were sort of from a different culture, and they didn't want to be sort of sent to their rooms for sort of three or four hours in the afternoon. They wanted to just sort of mingle and and you know mess around basically. And, and you see the you see a lot of the stuff with the players these days and it's it's you know riding on inflatable unicorns in the pool and that kind of thing and it's 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 light-hearted and and there was no light-heartedness under capello i think hodgson sort of moved it more in that direction and now southgate has has very much had the point of view that you know these players you know they they they're sort of big kids a lot of them it's one thing having a games room but they just want to be sort of stimulated and they want to be you know they, they want to sort of bounce off each other and feed off that sort of cheery atmosphere rather than the sort of austere atmosphere that that was the, the case in the past yeah i think in, in dan's piece this time they've got inflatable pizzas this year i don't know whether gary southgate's still got something going on with pizza <laughs> but it, it sounds like the unicorn's been ditched in favor of pizzas dan can you just tell us a little bit what what the players can get up to what what can they do for fun in the camp. Yeah, for sure. You, you missed out the inflatable watermelons they've got as well. So it's pizza and water. Oh, I didn't have a clever joke about watermelon, <laughs> so I left, I left it. They, they've replaced the unicorn. So, so look, we've all seen the, the basketball court and the, the players kind of 
Mason Mount, you know, was, I think he um, got a swish. Is it or a swish or a swish in basketball where he got it from distance and it went straight in basketball terms? Off I, think break. It's, I think it's swoosh. I think swoosh. it's swoosh. And then they got the F1 simulator, which was put in for, for this tournament. So you know, the, the chair with a big kind of screen and yeah, they can pretend they're Lewis Hamilton for the day, although that's particularly difficult, apparently. And the golf simulator, they've had one of those there. So if they can't get out on the golf course, which they did manage to do this week, they can hit like, you know, pretend they're playing golf on a wherever. Table tennis, we've all seen those. Flotation tank, which is more akin to recovery, to be fair, but it's like a little tank where they can go and lay in. There's like half a ton of salt in it. So they're just float, float. And apparently that's very relaxing. You've got breakout zones. If they want a, a quiet five minutes, they can go and sit in a corner and it's a little quiet area. Coffee style shop away from the canteen near breakfast. So again, it was described to me if they want a change of scenery, they can walk across to a coffee style shop where they sell smoothies and juices and and all sorts. So yeah, there, there's quite a lot on offer to be fair. And that's probably not half of it. Yeah, it sounds a million miles away from some <laughs> of the camps that, that Ollie's just described. Jack, it sounds all right, don't it? Yeah, yeah, it, it, it does sound really good. And it is good that the FA have put all this time and money into putting on something for the players. Like obviously it will help them to perform better. Uh, you know, we need the players to be relaxed and refreshed like mentally and physically when they're playing these very high pressure matches. Um, so in that sense, I think it's really good. I also think it's good because it's so, if the FA were too nice, there's always a danger of this kind of thing. If the FA were too generous and they get criticised by some papers for, look at this, look at all this nice stuff they put on for the footballers. Shouldn't they be focusing on training and tactics and, and that sort of bollocks? So I think it's good that the FA doesn't, isn't worried about that kind of coverage or criticism and is willing to risk, yeah, is willing to risk getting getting it in the neck from some aspects of the media Um in defence of their players and just trying to help their players to relax and perform well. So I, th- I definitely think it's a good thing, yeah. I think the only thing that have been criticised for is is bringing in Ed Sheeran. I think, that, I think that was beyond the pale in some people's eyes. Do you think that's a punishment or a reward? Well, I guess we'll have to find out whether Mason Mount and Ben Chilwell got, um, you know, got, were excluded or, or whether they had some kind of private gig between, you know, for the two of them as, you know, that, that, that would suggest it was punishment. But um, saw various interviews crop up yesterday where lots of England players were, were raving about Ed Sheeran. So they were clearly um, funny things footballers, aren't they? Can't say it'd be my idea of having a great time, but yeah, fair play, each to their own. Jack, because obviously a lot of it is, is hosted in England and they're at St George's Park, which is familiar to them. Do you think if it wasn't for COVID that they'd be allowed to see see more of their families and, and Southgate would make families more of a part of, of the whole occasion, the whole tournament? Yeah, I'm sure that is the case. Um, I'm sure that if if they didn't have to follow COVID rules and were still at SGP, I imagine they would probably, I don't know how they do it, they'd probably have a fa- maybe a family day after every game or every maybe once a week they'd have a day where either the families could come on site to see the to see the players or perhaps the players would be let off site to see their families. I'm not sure exactly how, I mean obviously, I mean Ollie will know more about this than me, but Baden-Baden 2006, uh, I believe that the, the families and WAGs were believed to have been too, too present, too involved, too much of a distraction and I'm sure the FA would want to guard against that, although that said, you know, this is no longer the kind of golden generation celebrity era. I think, frankly, if you ask most people in the UK who, you know, the wives and girlfriends of the England players were, they wouldn't know, which is a very different from the situation than it was 15 years ago. Um, so given that 
as long as they guarded against any potential distractions like that, I'm sure in theory they would integrate some family time. But I suppose that's why um, uh, that's another hurdle really that the FA are having to uh, having to cross this summer. Ali, how much of a part of families play, played in some of the tournaments that you've covered? The one that people always cite is Jack just cited now is, is 2006 in, in, in Baden-Baden and there was I mean I, I wrote a piece about this before the tournament about the sort of contrasting camps that they've had down the years Sven Joran Eriksson's view was that you know the, these guys are away for a month they need their families are here to watch the World Cup it's nice if they can have as much family time as they like so there were players sort of finishing training and going off down the hill into Baden-Baden to um, to spend the afternoon with, with their families. That that was that was happening every day, and I know that a few of the players just felt it went too far. Uh, and in the build-up to the quarter-final, you know, a few of the senior players went to, went to Ericsson and said, "Look, this is this is ridiculous. We've got we've got the biggest match of our lives on on Saturday, a World Cup quarter-final. We've got I won't name the player g- g- going off to his you know his daughter's birthday and and, and saying he's got to do um, he's got to sort of be with his daughter as she gets her birthday her birthday cake in, in the afternoon straight after training and it was felt that that was too relaxed it was also the thing in Baden-Baden where you know the players wives and families were out sort of every night and they were out on you know there was a big media pack a, a paparazzi media pack sort of following them around everywhere and some of the some of the wives hated that and some of them absolutely loved it to the extent where some people were suspicious that some Relationships have been concocted just for just for this um, this particular um, jaunt, but it was there were players who were out, you know, there were players who were cooped up in their hotels in in Baden Baden, texting journalists saying, "Is it true my wife was, you know, dancing on a piano? Is it true that my wife was um, sort of up till five a.m. and you know all this kind of thing?" It was it was really unsettling the players, a lot of them. So that's clearly not, you know, that was clearly taking that out of that nice idea of a relaxed camp and taking it to an extreme and it didn't work. And obviously they went to the other, the other extreme in, in uh, South Africa four years later. And there was this, this perception really that, you know, as with managers, this manager too strict, this manager too soft, this manager too defensively rigorous, this two manager too kind of off the cuff, like Kevin Keegan. It was a perception that the camps were going from too relaxed to too strict. And ever since then, I think starting with, Roy Hodgson in um, in Krakow in 2012. It's just been a lot more relaxed. Trying to do what what, what the the Dutch players do and the German players do, where it's just a bit more sensible, a bit more grown up in some ways. Where you're not telling kids the the, the players they have to be locked up in the room like kids for three hours a day. And and not that I do that with my kids, but the um, but yeah, it's just it seems to be about finding that balance. I think you know I, I've never heard of any complaints in, in Rubino about, about how the camp was. I haven't heard any complaints this time in um, at St George's Park, but I guess it's more likely that you would hear complaints if they were losing games and there was that yeah. negativity, negativity around it. So it's all just one ingredient as to how you sort of keep the camp happy. Yeah, it's such a young squad as well this time around compared to some of the tournaments that that you would have covered, Ollie. Dan, when you were putting your piece together, I don't, I don't know whether you would have been able to find out this, but just does Southgate go to his leadership group and find out the kind of things that they want around the camp, or is it just is it him and the FA that, that make the decision? Are the players involved at all? There is dialogue between Gareth and his players about the, the kind of things that they might they may want. But I think what, what's important to stress is Gareth isn't stupid. He he really does understand his players and his players' needs. I think he has a very close bond with a lot of his players. Um 
maybe not Jack Grealish, but the other ones, perhaps he does certainly have a, a close bond with. So I'm sure there would have been discussions with the likes of Jordan Henderson, Harry Kane, two senior players about the, the setup of this camp. And I think the FA and in the when I put the piece together, I, I spoke to a few people and the, the logistics team of the FA were you know routinely praised for the work they actually did in Rapino. Like a lot of the credit was put on the work they did for making that camp the camp it was. And then Gareth like made a conscious effort to take all the best bits from Rapino into St. George's Park this time around. So I think Gareth, you know, will deserve credit for how he handled the camp in Russia. But ultimately, as Ollie said, when you're winning games, everyone's happy. So then you can take the bits that he knew everyone would have enjoyed there into St. George's Park. And I think that's kind of how that how they're doing it. It's an organic kind of process. It's, you know, they realise when things go bad, okay, we won't do that again. If things are good, okay, let's do that. And how can we improve it for next time? Do you know, Dan, if they if they watch the games together? So obviously the, the other night when we were trying to work out who England were playing and it was changing on a minute-by-minute minute basis, would the players have been grouped together or, or watching that game? Yeah, so uh, it, it came to our attention that the players um, the players and staff kind of all gathered together in the main lobby to watch Group F kind of unfold. But prior to that, the, the main place they've caught games is in the massage room, like the treatment room. Obviously a lot of players spend a fair bit of time in there. So I was told the FA put, TVs in there so that's where a lot of the, the players will sit and watch the games but for the group F kind of uh, how that unfolded they're all in the main lobby together watching that on two screens Jack do you know how the, how the players are feeling at the moment obviously they've got the, the Covid stuff with Mountain Chilwell going on at the moment they now know it's going to be such a big game at Wembley on Tuesday have you got like the vibe at the camp I think it's pretty it's pretty content to be honest um, the conversations I've had with sources over the last few days they've said you know they're happy with Southgate, happy with the camp, uh, happy with the approach. You know, w- one contact said to me that they're very aware of the fact that you can win a World Cup through one nils. You know, Spain in 2010 won all their knockout game, all four of their knockout games one nil. France in 2018 had a f- you know a few games where they scored quite a few goals, but their bit- most important wins really were Uruguay two nil and Belgium one nil in the quarters and semis. So I think the camp are very aware of the fact that you don't have to blow teams away with incredible attacking football in order to win a tournament, uh, which is which really has been the message from Southgate throughout. So I don't I don't get the sense of any grumblings about about the approach or the or the setup or the tactics or anything like that. I think everyone is very on board with Southgate. That that said. If England lose on Tuesday, everything will change. You know, if England lose on Tuesday, it'll be a disaster. It'll be, you know, three wasted years, massive step back from 2018, questions about Southgate. Is he too nice? Is he too soft? Did he get the team wrong? All that kind of thing. All that stuff will happen. So, um, you know, we're... uh, These issues about mood are always incredibly dependent on results. But for now, yeah, I I do get the impression it is a a happy and relaxed place. Yeah, and Ollie, in previous camps, would would the press's mood ha- have a massive effect on, on the players? It has done on on occasions. I mean, I, I remember, you know, uh, I, I remember hearing and reading about, you know, during the nineteen ninety World Cup and the, the 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 tabloids and the squad and the manager were almost at war. Um, it felt like you know th- th- there was this massive sort of uh, campaign against uh, Bobby Robson. Um, who sort of by the end of that tournament was being canonised by the same papers. Um, but it, it, 
Yeah, I, I'd say since since the I mean in, in, in the periods when I've been covering England and, and you know working as a journalist, I don't think the the atmosphere has been that fraught between the squad and the media. I think there's been times you know in in 2010, for example, where yeah the the team were were playing abysmally really, and they went out and yeah. um, they got a lot of criticism. But you know that, that um, I think most of them accepted that. Well, if I accepted now, at least that a lot of the criticism was fair. Um, and then I actually feel, um, in terms of the, you know, the media over over more recent years, you know, the, the, the Hodgson years, the Southgate years so far, I think the media has been quite sort of patient, um, understanding, sympathetic. I think when things have gone wrong for England, I think there's been a a sense that oh look, you know, we're not we're not going in with the sort of high expectations that. That we did in the 2000s. So, so Iceland 2016 was you know, was horrendous, and and they got so many so much criticism about you know on the front pages, but I think on the back pages it was it was generally I don't know it was condemning the performance and saying what was wrong, but it wasn't personal or anything like that. Um, and then 2018 obviously was such a an unexpected um, sort of joyful tournament, and 2021. Now there is expectation, and we're seeing England as, as you know, as, as Jack was saying earlier. It was you know they're winning games at a tournament and they're being criticised, and it's not mm. by the media. I think the media are sort of towing a line between being impressed and being concerned. It, it, it's fairly balanced, I would say. The media coverage hasn't been too much this way or that way, but the I think a lot of the reaction on social media is a lot more volatile and. To be honest, the players are far more connected with and engaged with what people are saying on social media than worrying about what mark out of ten they get in a, in a newspaper match report. You know, times have changed. They're not obsessing about what's in the in, a, in the papers. They're more likely to obsess about what's on the social media feed. Yeah, and Dan, I guess we've talked about the progress that's made in the camp. I mean, seven points and zero goals conceded would have been marvelled at in years gone by. But, but like Ollie says, in the social media age, everyone's got an opinion and every everything's heightened, without isn't it? Doubt, without doubt. And I think if you took social media away, people would see the, the group standings and be thrilled with how, how, the, how the performances and the results have gone. But obviously, as you say, everyone on social media thinks they're Gareth Southgate, wants to be Gareth Southgate. Gareth Southgate has an idea of who they'd play, who they'd leave out and... You know, that is one unique thing about social media. But I think, as Ollie said, I think you probably have to view it as a, you know, if England are winning and they're still being criticised, I mean, that that's difficult. But I guess a lot of the criticism comes around the starting 11 um, and, and Jack Grealish, really. That's, from all I've seen, that's kind of been the most criticism that there's been. It's like, well, why isn't Jack Grealish playing? Or, you know, Jack Grealish should be playing. And then he obviously played and started in the last game and, and made a good impact. So that's all I've sort of seen. I don't think there's been anything too negative. I don't think, admittedly, I didn't switch on social media after the Scotland game. Um, I'm sure there was a fair bit of criticism there. But no, I think it's just down to team selection. Let Everyone's got their opinion on who should play and who shouldn't play. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This is The England Show from The Athletic. Keep up to date with all of our Euro 2020 podcasts and writing by following us at The Athletic UK. Jack, finally, just just looking ahead, obviously, you're covering England for the Athletic this tournament. Next tournament's going to be a, a very different one to cover. C- Qatar at Christmas, how, how unusual is that going to be? Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be very strange um, in all sorts of ways. You know, I don't know what the situation's going to be with fans, with weather. It could be very hot, although it is going to be in November. There's talk of air-conditioned stadiums, all the rest of it. So it's a huge it's a huge step into the unknown for everyone. But of course, the weird, you know, the the strange thing about the timing is that that is now only 18 months away, or rather less than that. It's probably about 17, 16 months away. Um, so I don't think that the England team at the next World Cup will be, very, assuming they qualify, will be very different from the England team at the Euros now. Like, there is no one in this England setup who looks like they might retire from international football, for example. Uh, even the, even no. the guys in their 30s, like Henderson, Walker and Trippier, I don't think are going anywhere anytime soon. And I'm sure maybe that's why Gareth Southgate did move on from some of the older players after 2018. You know, he made a conscious decision not to pick guys like Ashley Young, for example, again. Uh, Cahill, Smalling, Jones, have all kind of fallen by the Vardy. They've all fallen by the wayside. And maybe that's because Southgate didn't want a spate of retirements after the, this Euros before the next World Cup. So I don't think it will be a very different England team, but uh, and I'm sure Southgate will be will be there as well. Ollie, do you think what what they're doing now is building towards the World Cup, or do you think they're, they're firmly focused on this Euros and what they're doing in this Euros? Yeah, I think initially, I mean, the, the, there was for once a sort of long-term plan at the FA when Southgate was appointed and they, they looked at the, the nature of the squad and it felt it was a very young squad and... and they felt that looking at the players who were coming through the development teams at that point, they were going to have to sort of build towards being competitive at um, 2022. They didn't feel like there was going to be any opportunity to really compete to win a tournament until 2022. Now that might sound a, a really downbeat assessment, but they, but they felt that they needed to build towards that. And, and um, so that, you know, I think the 2018 Reaching a semi-final, albeit via a fairly gentle draw, really, um, was ahead of schedule. It probably raised expectations. And I think also the fact that this tournament is taking place a year later than planned. It's only 18 months short of the um the um the World Cup. And and you know, they are looking at it as a tournament that they can compete to win. Um, 2022 has been the long-term target for a long time. There was a there was a countdown clock at at um, St George's Park for a while. I don't know if it's still there in the coaches' room, which was counting down to the 2022 World Cup. And it's there was a feeling among some at the FA that look, that's just sort of almost like kicking the can down the road. It's, you know, you're just sort of making excuses for the next four tournaments if you're saying that 2022 is the one we're going to win. Um, so there is now this sense that 
yes, they are building towards 22, 24, 26. But this is a tournament that that they can win because if you look at if you look at you know they have ended up on the right side of the draw after all the debates about whether they would want to finish second or first in the group. They've got a really tough game against Germany on Tuesday, but there is probably a feeling in in both of those camps that if if England or Germany, well, one of them will get through, whichever of them gets through, will really fancy themselves to get through the rest of the um, the draw to get to the final. So I. I I applaud the sort of long-term vision that they've taken. I think it's done a lot of good, but I think now that now that they're there and they're in the last sixteen, you've you've got to go for it. Seize the seize the seize the day, seize the opportunity. Even if yes, there is a an important long-term building aspect that we shouldn't forget either. So that about wraps it up for this episode. Thanks ever so much to the guys for joining me to chat through what's going on at St. George's Park currently. And if you do want to check out Dan's piece and you're not already a subscriber to The Athletic, then all you've got to do is go to theathletic.com slash England pod and you'll be able to sign up for just a pound a month. You'll read Dan's piece and you'll read everything else that's good on The Athletic. I'll be back tomorrow with Jack again, Mark Chapman and Flo Lloyd Hughes with a full preview of England v Germany. Take care. The Athletic. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub an official partner of The Athletic.